The following podcast is a W2M Network original production. Visit W2Mnet.com for all of our other great podcasts, plus news, reviews, articles, and opinions from the worlds of wrestling, video games, football, and entertainment. One. What's up, guys? Welcome to Wrestling Unwrapped number 40 at Talks. I can't remember the name. I not remember the number. I'm your host, Patrick Katza, and joining me, as always, Mr. Harry Broadhurst. Harry, we've got, uh, we've got one hell of an anniversary coming up, don't we? Well, funny that you choose those particular words there. Hell, you say? Dun-dun-dun. And no, we're not talking about our relationship as hosts. Awful. Not even putting that over. Eh. It's better than half of your corny jokes. Anyway, indeed, it is... Well, in our case, we're recording this on Sunday, October the 1st. And coming up this Thursday, October the 5th, is the 20th anniversary of the show we're about to cover, which is Bad Blood in Your House from the Kill Center in St. Louis, Missouri. And that makes it the 20th anniversary of Hell in a Cell, possibly one of the most iconic matches from the WWE. So we figured, what the hell? Why don't we cover Bad Blood in Your House? I, I feel like if we, if the first time we say it, we should have said it properly. It's the 20th anniversary of hell in a cell. My voice still isn't 100%, so no. It's all right. I got you covered. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Vince. Anytime. Now, try and get back into touch with the fans. Anyway, <laughs> uh, before we get going, this podcast is presented as a presentation of the W2M Network. For more information, be sure to check out W2Mnet.com as well as 411media.com and last word on ProWrestling.com. Why don't we get right down to it? Well, I mean, there's not a lot to cover, so we have a little bit of leeway. At least we should have a little bit of leeway and still be able to hit around an hour, the hour and a half mark, but yeah, I'm ready when you are. I got it pulled up in front of me, so. All righty. Well, then, as we always do for this seven-match card, who's Harry? Uh, six. Seven. I can name it in six matches. No, seriously, there's only six matches. Two singles matches and five tag matches, I thought. Try that again? Two singles matches and five tag matches. Four tag matches, player. One of those four is a handicap. This is the Teddy Longer pay-per-views, pretty much. Anywho, as Patrick mentioned, it is October the 5th, 1997. We are in the Keel Center former home of the worldly despised St. Louis Blues. Go Red Wings. Screw both of you. Waiting for a Go Blackhawks reference here because I know what's coming. I said what I said. Screw both of you. Anywho, this is Bad Blood 1997. Here we go. 
Our opening contest is a handicap match, though it wasn't supposed to be. We'll talk about that in a few seconds. As D'Lo Brown, Kama Mustafa, and I think he's still Rocky Maivi at this point. I don't believe he's the Rock yet. Yep, he is still Die Rocky Die. Okay. Defeat the Legion of Doom when Maivia pins Hawk with what we would come to know as Rock Bottom in 12 minutes and 20 seconds. That was not known yet, the name. Hence why I said with what we would come to know as Rock Bottom. In your house. The WWF tag team titles are decided as the Godwins of Henry and Phineas, Mark Canterbury and Dennis Knight, BKA Midian, defeat the Headbangers, Mosh and Thrasher, to win the titles when Midian pins Mosh. Uh, that would be Henry, I think, is Midian. Or was Phineas Midian? I One of them was Southern Justice, Godwins, uh, Tex Schlesinger, and Shanghai Pierce. Call them whatever the hell you want to call them, frankly. They win the tag team titles when Dennis Knight pins Mosh at 12-18. Owen Hart wins the vacant Intercontinental title, pinning Farouk Mu- Farouk Assad. Was he still Farouk Assad at this point? No, 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 no. All the way to the start of the nation, just Farouk. Okay. Well, either way, uh, Steve Austin hits him with the IC title belt at 7 minutes and 15 seconds, leading to Owen getting the pin. You say, huh? And the answer to that is Austin wanted his chance at revenge on Owen at Survivor Series. All right. Action Warfare kicks up next as the Disciples of Apocalypse, Skull, Chains, 8-Ball, and Crush, Brian Lee, uh, Brian Adams, Crush, and the Harris Brothers defeat... All right, bear with me here because I'm going to screw this up. Jesus Castillo Jr., Jesus Estrada, Miguelito Perez, and Savio Vega when... Crush pins Jesus at 9 minutes and 12 seconds with the Tilt-A-Whirl backbreaker. Uh, I believe that was Jose Estrada, not Jesus. There's too many... No, I'm not going to say that because then I'll get in trouble. So we're going to just move. Good idea. We'll go with, we'll go with Jose then. Because the Estrada everybody knows hasn't broken into the business yet. That would be Jorge. All right, moving on. The team of Bret Hart and the British Bulldog, Davey Boy Smith, defeat the Patriot and Vader in a flag match when Bret pins the Patriot with a... I know this... Rolling Prawn, I think? Uh, he, he, he essentially reversed the... Uh, Rolling prawn by the Patriot. Yeah, it was a roll-up reversal. Yeah, I only write who pin two in tag matches. I don't write the finish on my notes. Uh, yeah, he uh, kept going on the uh, O'Connor ring. At 21-17. Who the f- thought that was a good idea? They got the next no. match, right? Huh? At least they got the next match, right? Yeah. As your main event sees Shawn Michaels pin The Undertaker to 
become the number one contender for a little pay-per-view known as Survivor Series 1997. May have heard of it. And she gets help from, it's got to be, it's got to be Kane at 29.57. And those... And... And what? And Max Mini and Nova beat Tarantula and Mosaic at 6.44, I believe, when Max Mini pins, I believe, Tarantula. You know what? I completely forgot to type that match out when I did my DVD results. That's yeah, you did. <laughs> I knew there were seven right. matches. You're right. My bad. I forgot about the minis match. I'd like to forget about it again. So, let's try this again. Five tag matches. Um, can I make a request? When we discuss that match, can we keep it short? Wow, already? Okay, Waller. <laughs> I blocked myself for that one. Start the show. Are you going to be alive to start the show? <laughs> All right. You know, I probably should have chosen my words better, considering we have to kick off with what we have to kick off with. All right, I'm good. I'm a professional. I'm ready to go again. Thank you, Harry. So, yes, indeed. An old 30-minute match that had never been seen before in the WWF. Technically, he had never been seen before, period. Technically. All because Shawn Michaels must pay for his transgressions to The Undertaker. This is WWF Bad Blood in your house. And yes, our first of 96 tag matches kicks things off as it is a handicap tag team match. You know what, quite frankly, no, we can't even start with that. We have to start with the announcement that they make at the very beginning of the show because it affects the show. Oh, you mean the, uh, the fact that we were supposed to get four tag matches and three singles matches, but, um, well, somebody's belt told. Yeah. So... Taking things off on the actual show, the announcement is made to the home audience. By the way, I am watching the network version. I believe Harry did too, though he has the DVD version, but just because it's pretty much uncut, I think. Yeah, I have, the, uh, I have a pay-per-view copy of the show in my collection, actually. But for the sake of saving myself time of not having to dig it out, I use the network version for this particular rewatch. And this one is pretty much uncut to the point that the announcement of the death of Brian Pillman that same day, at that point, Heart Foundation associate Brian Pillman, technically not a member, though, somehow, I think. Because he's not was, in Canada. Yes, but his career was started in Canada. Granted, but he wasn't from Canada. He was technically an American, therefore he was an associate. British Bulldog was a member. Jim Neidhart was Bulldog. a member. British Bulldog married a Canadian. Oh, okay. So that makes it count. Anyway. So, yes, this was also the day that Brian Pillman passed away in his hotel room, like, the day of the show. Uh, 
We'd get some updates throughout the night. I don't think we're going to go into too much detail. Um, but it is sad that, you know, Brian Pillman, who, when he was on his game, he was one of the best and provided one of the most legendary moments in ECW history as well, um, had passed away. And, yeah, that was... I think so. The card, the card, unfortunately, had to be shuffled around as well. That's why the eight-man tag, the second-to-last match, was an eight-man tag instead of a one-on-one match of, I believe, Brian Pillman versus Goldust. Goldust is an English uh, Wrong. Brian Pillman versus Dude Love. Oh, that's He was done with the Goldust feud because Goldust and, uh, I believe, Goldust and Marlena were split up on television like two months later. So Marlena was Mar- Marlena was back with Gold Dust already. The 30-day trial thing after um, uh, forget what the paper view before this was. SummerSlam. Green, ground Zero. Oh, okay. Uh, the 30-day indentured servitude contract that Marlena had with Brian Pillman had expired at the show, so she would have been back with Gold Dust, and Pillman would have moved on to a feud with Dude Love at this point. It was supposed oh, to have okay. been. Pillman versus Dude Love here, but obviously due to circumstances beyond their control, that did not happen. Yeah. So, kicking things off in-ring-wise, it is originally supposed to be a six-man tag of Legion of Doom and Ken Shamrock against uh, all members of the nation that are not vying for a title that night, being Mark Henry, D'Lo Brown, and then still Rocky Maivia, in case you somehow don't know, The Rock. Wrong again. Was no, not Mark Henry. Mark Henry was Rocky. Mustafa. Mark Henry wasn't there yet. Uh, all right. Well, we're one for one. You're zero for two. And you're zero for one. Zero for two. You said Gold Dust instead of Dude Love. I said, and you're zero and one with forgetting a match on the show. Oh, okay, yeah. So we're, we're square now. All right, move on. Yeah. Anyway, yes, Thomas Mustafa, the Supreme Fighting Machine, Halo Brown, and Rocky Maivia. Um, four out of the five weren't bad. Yeah, I thought this match was okay. I mean, granted, the Legion of Doom is past being capable of anything competent at this point in his career, their careers. They'd already been wrestling for some 20 years at this point, and their best days were clearly behind them. I mean, this is on the verge of going into the pusher angle with Darren Drozdov, which would lead to Hawk's official um, Citus from the World Wrestling Federation. And then they've been trying to rec- they would try to recreate the Legion of Doom constantly ever since, even going as far as to bring in Heidenreich to team with Animal with Legion of Doom. 2K5, 2K05. But, uh, I mean, all things considered, for the 12 minutes of this ran, it wasn't bad or anything. I mean, not not the worst match on the night, in my opinion. I would agree there, although Hawk in the ring, yikes, uh, looked about as good as his work at SummerSlam 92. And if you've ever watched that one, you'll know what I'm talking about, because just, yikes, it's seems clunky at times to me, although if the right people are in, yeah, it can be very good. And in this case, the right people would be Animal, Dilo Brown, and The Rock. 
Tama wasn't that great either. Yeah, I was going to say if I had to pick some, if I had to pick a member of the nation that was the best worker at this point, I think I might go with D'Lo. And D'Lo would only get work, better over the course. Yeah. And D'Lo would only get better over the course of the next two years. Definitely. Unfortunately, he was never the same after the injury that took Darren Drozdov out of wrestling. But boy, not a good start to our show. Jesus. Um, yeah, the, the death of Brian Pillman, and now the par- paralysis of uh, Darren Drozdov. Yeah, we're off to a fantabulous start for this one. Yeah. Um, Anywho, no, but uh, yeah, any, anytime Jock was in the ring, though, it just he was not moving that well. He kind of looked like he was doing a monster match at certain points. Um, do, we wa- do we want to talk about why there is no uh, six-man tag here? Do you want to bring up the injuries? Because they showed a video replay of how the injuries were originally sustained, and apparently that was a shoot injury that he uh, that Ken Shamrock originally sustained courtesy of Farouk Assad, or just Farouk or whatever. Pretty much what you just said. Um, the nation, I believe, jumped Ken Shamrock previous to the match and left him with, I believe, internal injuries? Well, what happened was it was in Raw. If I'm not mistaken, it was in a singles match on Raw, and he got hit with uh, Farouk's spine buster, and it messed up his lungs. And then he had a uh, match at a house show in Kawasaki, Japan, because, you know, house shows in Japan before pay-per-views, why not? And that match was against Vader, which is, frankly, a bad idea when you have any kind of injury, and probably even a bad idea when you're healthy. And they apparently... However, at the same same time, it's Ken Shamrock. Yeah, but they they apparently worked a quasi-shoot style to that match there, because I remember listening to an episode of Something to Wrestle With, where uh, Bruce Pritchard talks about that particular house show. Ah. Uh, so, yeah, Ken Shamrock is not able to go, and in the end, the numbers game proved to be too much, although, I mean, LOD looked pretty well, although, you know, rock bottom ends up being the end of LOD in this case. Kama Mustafa kicks uh, Hawk in the back of the head, and then Rock hits, well, Rocky hits Hawk with the... Uh, well, what we would come to know is the rock bottom. We'll just say a version of a urinary. Yes, that'll work. Yes. A, a fall-down urinary slam. Exactly. So, and for the record, you're a nagi. No, you are. No, you're a nagi. Shout-out to the best commentary team in pro wrestling, Phil Colvin and Derek St. Holmes. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the Nation of Domination ends up 1-0 on the night. We shall see if they're 2-0. Obviously not, because, you know, you already heard the results. Moving yeah. on to our next contest, and yeah, this will be a short time span spent on this. It is a... Oh, boy. It is a Lucha Libre match with four minis in a tag team match. And a referee who clearly has no idea what the he's supposed to be doing. <laughs> Despite being one of the best referees in the company. Yeah, Coyote, what the hell? Yeah. Um, 
basically, why the hell was this this early? This seems like it should have been where the eight-man tag was. Uh, this was filler in order to get them to the next match. In order to get them to the tag team title match, this was just filler. This was just filler. I mean, I'm not going to say this was the worst match because there were a couple of cool spots here and there. It wasn't a bunch of clotheslines, unlike what we'll talk about in a little bit, and that's kind of going to tease what my worst match of the night's going to be. I mean, it really shouldn't be any surprise given the participants that we discussed in that particular match. So, yeah. Uh, the one thing that was that's... hilarious about this was hearing Vince McMahon trying to call it. Oh, good Lord. What a maneuver! Is it, is, it, is, it, is it hard to understand why this was Vince McMahon's last last show on commentary? Which, by the way, the commentary team tonight is Jerry King Waller, Vincent Kennedy, and good old J.R. Jim Ross. By God, that commentary team has a family. A very rich family. Yes, yes it does. Um... Well, obviously, there would be more important goings down at the very next pay-per-view that would require Vince's attention. And then after that, the Mr. McMahon character becomes a thing, and therefore he's unable to do commentary. But that does lead us to, in my opinion, the second-best commentary team in WWF history. Being Jerry the King Waller and Jim Ross. I'm going to go number one being Gorilla Monsoon and Bobby Heenan. Oh, without a, without a shadow of a doubt. Rest in peace, Brain. We miss you. Very good. Um, Max Mini also being called the world's smallest athlete, which if you watch at least like in the beginning of the match, yeah, all of the other competitors have a couple of inches on him. This is like if his tag partner, who I believe was the second shortest one, is let's say three foot nine at the second yeah. shortest, I wouldn't be surprised if Max Mini was about three foot five. Correct me if I'm wrong, Max Mini. You're wrong. Wouldn't he go on to become Masterita Dorada? I believe so. And for a time, I almost thought he was Dink. Uh, No, that was Tiger Jackson. Oops. Well, okay, it's not really an oops. I was just wrong. I just, uh, I'm in the process of making my way through uh, 1993 and my network watching. We've talked about this before, and... I'm to the point now where Matt Gorn gets fired for his demons. So I went looking for uh, to find out who it was that replaced Gorn as Doink. And A, I found out it was Ray Apollo, and B, I found out that Dink was Tiger Jackson. Ah. Ray Apollo being the only other person who actually has any right to be advertised as Doink. Well, Seriously. I mean, technically the Preppy uh, trivia question for you, because that's not true. Uh, when they did the multiple doink angles at WrestleMania, do you know who the other doink was? Yes, I do, but that was a one-off, so no, he, did, he didn't have a right to call himself doink either in Skinner. Yeah, he, he actually did it at a couple of house shows too, though. Steve Korn, Skinner. All right, back to the show at hand, the show we're actually talking about. See, this tells you how little we paid attention to the mini tag match, and frankly, the match itself shows it. It's not good, but it's not the worst thing on the show. So I'll give it kind of a creative, not to mention it was thrown together last minute due to the circumstances regarding the death of Brian Pillman. So I'm more willing to give these guys a pass than I probably traditionally would have been, if that makes sense. Yeah. No excuse to 
Vince McMahon, Jerry Lawler, and Jr. though. For not knowing the Lucha rules, at the very least. You're booking a Lucha match, you damn well better know the rules. Shall we move on? Yes, let's. To the tag team titles. Introduced by Sonny, who at this point was so hot. Yeah, she was, but my God, that voice. Yeah, well, um, <laughs> I, again, almost made a very, now I'm going to make it. They make gags for a reason. Not touching that one. <laughs> I wouldn't either. Well, yeah. So, yeah, Sunny, for some reason, I guess because she has history with the Godwins, and quite frankly, they needed a place to put her into the show just because. Actually, she was introducing random matches around this time because they had nothing better for her storyline-wise. If I'm not mistaken, this would have happened after Candido would have walked out of the company, therefore the body Donnas don't exist anymore. If I'm not mistaken, Candido would be in ECW at this point as part of the triple threat. Uh, the timing would be about right. We're approaching November to remember 97 at this point. Which is Douglas versus Bigelow. Indeed. So, Henry O. and Phineas I. Godwin, or Southern Justice, or whatever the hell you want to call wait, him. Wait, 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 wait. Let's tell everybody what that stands for. Henry O., If they're going to take the time to make the names punny, we should at least put them over. If I don't put them over. Henry O is hog. Phineas I is pig. In case you can't tell, they're southern hillbillies. And Mosh and Thrasher are the headbangers. So let's move on. Um, for the WWF... For the WWF Tag Team Championships held by the headbangers because... Sure, why not? As I said, because reasons. Exactly. But, Ugh. yeah, this match. Tag Team Wrestling in the World Wrestling Federation was at an all-time low here. At least it's two actual real tag teams? Okay, that's probably fair. I mean, there would be times where there weren't even, there weren't two legitimate tag teams on the roster by and large, but... uh. No, for sure, though, one of the things that I think definitely needs to be said about this contest here is that, well, frankly, it's not good. At all. Like, they have moments of clarity where it looks like they know what the hell they're doing, but there's just so much disarray throughout the course of this contest that it, it just it comes off terribly. This isn't my worst match of the night either, which is sad. Um. Yeah, this was the second consecutive match where all the commentary team really did was crack jokes. Jerry Lawler constantly asking if Vince McMahon has listened to several different bands that he lists. One of whom being Marilyn Manson, who just recently got injured, so that's kind of topical in 2017. He got hurt at a concert in 2017, the day before we're doing this podcast. Holy crap, he's been around for more than 20 years. If I'm not mistaken, the beautiful people came out in, like, 96. 
no, I think you are mistaken on that. I think Beautiful People was a little bit later on. I want to say it was like 98 or 99. Either way, it's a long-ass time. I wasn't going for exact specifics here. I, if I'm not mistaken, his first CD, well, his first mainstream CD was called Smells Like Children, and I want to say that was like 93 or 94. So yeah, it's been a while. But anyways, that's the kind of culture that they're appropriating to with the headbangers here. It would work about a year later. Well, actually, not even a year later. It worked a few months later. I didn't dislike Mosh and Thrasher. I actually thought Mosh and Thrasher were pretty decent workers. I mean, it was a dumb gimmick, but I thought they were pretty decent workers. Unfortunately, I have always been of the opinion that uh, the Godwin Southern Justice, whatever you want to call them, have never added anything of importance. Um. Midian was probably at his best as a member of the ministry. And Mark Canterbury, a.k.a. Henry, was just awful. Although presumed to be one of the legitimate, toughest men in the entire WWF locker room. Oh, yeah, there's that. He was in the brawl for all. He was. Yeah, so was Steve Williams. How'd that work out for him? He ended up injured. Exactly. As you can tell, folks, we really don't give a damn about the match. The Godwins win. Uncle Cletus takes a few digs after, and the Godwins are the new tag team champions. Snore. Trivia. Trivia, because I actually looked this up because I didn't know. I want to see if you do. Uncle Cletus is... Don't know. Don't care. The dirty white boy, Tony Anthony. Really don't care, though. He was formerly T.L. Hopper, the plumber. You're not helping. Well, that's it's appropriate, because this match was in the crapper. Exactly. <laughs> All right, let's move on to the IC title. one. It's not necessarily bigger things, at least somewhat better things. Uh, a lot better things, although... You didn't care about the match again. No. This one's definitely about what's going down at ringside rather than what's going on in the ring. And while I think that's a little bit disrespectful to Owen, who I've always enjoyed his in-ring work, given the participants in this contest, it makes sense why the focus would be on the outside and who specifically is on the outside. Patrick, why don't you take it from here? This is, I believe, the finals of the tournament. It's either a match for the vacant or it's the finals of the tournament because of the vacant Intercontinental Championship. You are correct in saying that it is a, the finals of a tournament for the vacant Intercontinental title. I believe it was an eight-man tournament if memory serves. Sounds about right. And the reason for that being is that the, well, by the end of the match, previous Intercontinental Champion had his neck broken by the now-new Intercontinental Champion at SummerSlam 97, leaving Austin unable to defend his championship, and this is the finals to crown a new holder of the belt that was vacated by Steve Austin against his will. So, who better to bring out to present the Intercontinental Championship to the new winner than the man himself, Stone Cold Steve Austin? And the commissioner, Sergeant Slaughter. No one cares. There. He was there, too. No one cares. Look, I mean, granted, but he was there. No one cares. 
Um, have we done Survivor Series? Or not Survivor Series. Have we done SummerSlam 97? No. We did 96. No, we did 94. Okay, so we've done 94 and 98. Yes. Okay, good to know. Carry on. Um, yeah. No one gave a damn about this match. Why? Because Austin was absolutely, as you'd come to expect, raising hell at ringside. He ends up being the one ringing the bell, telling everybody, start the damn match, let's get this over with, and then would proceed to essentially hijack all three ringside commentary tables. The first one being, obviously, the English. Then he'd go to the Spanish with Carlos Cabrera and not Hugo Savinovich. Okay, first of all, say say it correctly. Say no, because I am. I am. No, no you're not. His name is Carlos Cabrera and Tito Santana, and then he'd also take over the French table with Jean Brassard and Ray Rougeau. Yes. He went to the French broadcasting table. Yeah, the French broadcasting table used to be at ringside, and ironically enough, some 20 years later, it's the same French broadcasting team of Jean Broussard and Raymond Rougeau. Does Raymond Rougeau still do? Yeah, it's still Raymond Rougeau. Huh. It is at this point that I will remind everybody that I miss Hugo, son of a bitch. Still not funny. Yes, it is. No, it's not at all. Anyway, Steve Austin completely takes over at ringside for pretty much the majority of this match. Until, I believe, Jim Neidhart would come down, because Owen did come down on his own originally, as did Farouk. Um, Jim Neidhart would end up causing chicanery for most of the second half of the match, and at the very end, Neidhart would distract the referee, while Steve Austin would deck, of all people, Farouk, allowing Owen Hart to win the match and become the new Intercontinental Championship. Okay, Why did he do it? As, hang on, as, men, as Harry mentioned, Steve Austin wanted to be the one to beat Owen Hart himself for the Intercontinental Championship. And would okay. do so the following month in Montreal at the Survivor Series. But for some odd reason, nobody seems to remember that match at that show. wonder why. No clue. Huh. Um, oh, and then we should probably also mention, he kind of presented the belt to Owen in that when the bell rang, he chucked it across the ring. <laughs> I mean, um, theoretically, he, I, theoretically, he gave him the belt. Nowhere near him, but yeah, I mean, the idea is there. He presented the belt. Um, yeah, this was the Steve Austin show in, at this point because you probably saw at a max after the match. All the rest of it, you were just watching what Stone Cold was doing, which is a disservice, especially to somebody like Owen, who I've said it before and I'll say it again. I really and truly believe Owen was better than Brett. Well, as good in the ring, but better on the mic, I think Owen was better. Well, I think given the circumstances that required Austin's necessitation at ringside and the fact that one of those men is in this match, I kind of understand if necessarily Owen wouldn't be upset about that. I mean, he did kind of almost cripple the guy. Yeah. 
Oh, and Owen did come out wearing his Owen 316 shirt, which on the back says, I just broke your neck. And of course, Austin, Austin, you didn't break my neck. You didn't Um, break my neck, kid. Yeah. He called Owen Hart the kid. I mean, technically, Austin is older than Owen, so there's um, as far as the match goes, yeah, uh, when we do our written review for this sometime in 2020, I, I don't think we can necessarily grade this match just because we don't see enough of it to be able to do so. Yeah, this this was one that, it was a disservice to the match. I mean, was Austin hilarious? Absolutely. The weird thing was is that the French table spoke English to him, but the Spanish table spoke strictly Spanish to him. <laughs> I uh, I, <laughs> I feel like I'm at the Spanish announce table trying to formulate a sentence in English to talk to Austin. He did threaten Santana, though, which I thought was funny, because longtime wrestling fans know that Tito Santana is a badass. Yes, indeed. So, so if, Austin, if Austin wanted to try to get frisky with Santana... I don't think that would necessarily end so well for Steve. No, God, no, it wouldn't. So, yeah, Owen Hart wins the Intercontinental Championship. He'd hold it for one month. Uh, Transitional champion, I believe, is the phraseology you are looking for. Yes. So, our next contest. Schedule for our next contest. Uh, the eight-man tag match. Yeah. The Disciples of Apocalypse versus Los Boricuas. I am not going through the names again because... Nope. Um... If you... JR has the best map line to describe this match here. If clotheslines cost a dollar, these boys would be rich. No, they wouldn't. They'd be poor. Maybe he meant if dishing out clotheslines cost a dollar, he'd be rich. They'd still be poor because they'd have to pay to dish out the clotheslines. Maybe he meant if you deliver a clothesline, you get a dollar. I don't know. Whatever. Jim Ross's line was more entertaining than this match was. Frankly, I think the less we talk about this match, kind of the better off we are. This is Clothesline City, 1997. Uh, this this was a match that was thrown together. I believe this is the actual match that was thrown together because of the situation with Brian Pillman. Nope. Wrong. This match was on the books well in advance of this pay-per-view. This was Vince Vince Russo's thing with Faction Warfare. Let's not forget, at this point... Let's not forget, at this point, Vince Russo's the lead writer for the WWF. God help us. And we're not there yet. And it could be worse. It could be Russo and WCW. If you want to listen to us cover Vince Russo and WCW, oh. check for, check for <laughs> Spring Stampede 2000. Oh. I'm sure there's a couple others available in the archives. Mayhem. Oh, no, that one wasn't Russo. That was Kevin Sullivan. No, I think Springsteen P2000 might be the only uh, Russo show we've done. 
for WCW. All the same, check the archives. Yeah. Um, yeah. This happened. Why, I don't know, but this happened. All because Vince Russo wanted faction warfare in the fact that we have DOA versus Los Bariquas versus Nation of Domination. You could technically throw in D-Generation X. Why? Because it's 1997, and they decided to bring up things that are now touchy subjects here in 2017. Well, let's also remember that uh, Savio Vega would become an honorary member of D-Generation X some four months later at uh, One Night Only in Texas. The way out of Texas? Yeah, that. Whatever. I'm putting as much effort into this show as the booking committee did. Well, they put effort in, just not here. So, I'm yeah, going that, 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 eh. to go ahead and continue by saying that I have kind of a built-in bias against this match. And that has a lot to do with the fact that two of the participants in this match are two people who I absolutely cannot stand, not only as wrestlers, but as human beings, and that would be the Ooh. Harris brothers. Oh, damn, I was, I, was, I was debating cutting you off and asking if I could answer, because, yeah, Ron and Don Harris, Jacob and Eli Blue, whatever the hell you want to call them, uh, yeah, screw them. They're, they suck and they're assholes. Asshole might be nice to describe the Harris boys. I was trying to keep it clean-ish. Yeah, I know. So we have to keep it professional. We're on it. We're on the W2M network, available online at W2Mnet.com. Indeed. So I don't, even, no, I don't even know who the hell wins. I think it's DOA, though. Not that anyone okay. cares. All right. A, you cut me off there. B, I didn't hear what you said anyway, so try that again. I didn't know you were saying something, but um, no, I was just going to say DOA wins. Nobody really cares. Whatever your thought is after that, I say let's move on to the sub-main event. Well, I do want to give credit where credit is due. Crush's Tilt to World Backbreaker looked cool. And I, I, I believe it's the only wrestling move in the entire contest, so that might be why it looked cool. Well, and, the only wrestling move that wasn't a clothesline anyway. Yeah, this was bad. Moving on. <laughs> You'll be hearing more about this match later. That's all I'm going to say. Yes, yes, you will, because we agree. Anyway, our next right. contest. Okay, seriously, <laughs> a, flag, a, a flag match for pinfalls and submissions count? What the hell? Yeah, it's the Patriot Invader representing USA versus British Jericho. Bulldog versus British Bulldog and WWF champion Bret the Hitman Hart in a flag match. However, the stipulation was added earlier in the night, contrary to what Fink says, which he said it was added just moments ago. Vince announced it about an hour and a half prior. Um. Pinfalls and submissions do count as a way to win, or you win by grabbing the flag. Why did this happen? Well, you couldn't reach the flag. I don't think any of them could reach the flag. So they had no choice because they couldn't. Yeah. Maybe Brett, if he was jumping. Yeah. 
Because there are times when they're up on the top turnbuckle, and you can see they're not reaching. They are not reaching uh, high enough to get that flag. As hard as they may try, Brett would have to jump. Why? Because the poles were too tall. I've always heard a story that they put, they set the poles up earlier in the night. Realized just how tall they were, and decided, hey, why don't we add a pinfall or a submission to this match because no one can reach the flags. At least no one can reach the flag without risking serious bodily injury. Yep. Um, I mean, before the match, things were heated and things got going very quickly. A lot of lot of weapon or well, a lot of use of weapons. Uh, a lot of brawling on the outside made it feel like it was going to be kind of an exciting and and thrill filled match. While you're doing this before the first ever Hell in a Cell, but once that bell rings, what the hell? It's just a regular wrestling match, which I'm not complaining about it being a regular wrestling match, but if you're going to tease something like that, why not go with it? Yeah, this needed some kind of like, you would think that this was a flag match and the traditional rules in a flag match are capture the flag, that. Wouldn't that automatically make it no count or no disqualification? I don't know about no you. Well, yeah, because, I mean, technically, if the only way to win a flag match is to go up and capture the flag, then wouldn't that make it... How are you going to get disqualified in a flag match? I'll mean, go ahead. Another foreign object, using another foreign object. No, because in order to win the match, it's specifically stated that you have to climb up the pole and grab the flag. Okay. It's specifically stated in the title match that you can only win the championship by pinfall or submission, but people do get disqualified. Yes, and those are, there are special circumstances put in place where the, the, no dis, the title changing hands on a countout or a disqualification is waived. Which is few and far between. I totally get that this would still have disqualification and countouts because you can still cheat to win. You can still I, cheat to win. I disagree. I think that in, in, in the grounds of making this a flag match in the first place, it becomes no, no disqualification by default. Let's put this to our listeners. Facebook.com backslash wrestling unwrapped. Let us know. If we'll, put up a, we'll put up a poll over on on the uh, on the Facebook page, let us know if you agree. With no, that. we won't. I will. We'll put it up on Twitter, but we won't put it up on Facebook. We can. We can't put up polls on Facebook. I thought we could. No, they took that one away. Those bastards. All right, then they can find us on Twitter at twitter.com backslash wu off the shelf. I stole your plugs. Okay. But um, um, I mean, this turns can, into just a traditional wrestling match in the end, and I believe everybody hits their finisher except for Bulldog, and that includes the Patriot hitting the Uncle Slam. You may know it better as the Bubba Bomb. Uh, no, not true. Well, Uncle no, Slam, no. Uncle Slam was to the side, Bubba Bomb, Bubba sits out with it. Yeah, I, I realize that. 
brightest if I said that. I, I um, think we're skipping the I think we're skipping the most important part of this match though. The fact that one of these things is not like the other, given the four that are in the match? Uh no, we're skipping the fact that we heard Kurt Angle's music three years before he debuted. <laughs> You'd hear it again one month later. I I feel like I, I feel like I couldn't help myself. I, I found myself singing along, you suck, you suck, as the Patriot was making his way to the ring. And this has nothing to do with Del Wilkes at all. I'm just so ingrained with metal, the, the song that the Patriot used and eventually became Kurt Angle's theme. I'm so ingrained with that song being associated with Kurt Angle that I don't associate it to Del Wilkes and the Patriot. You're not the only one. <laughs> I absolutely said you suck along with it. Because I knew that it had been used. I forgot that it was the Patriot who used it. Um, so, yeah, as soon as I heard his music, I just started... I, I like, wasn't even paying attention because it was entrances. And all of a sudden, I just felt the inconquerable urge to just start saying, you suck. Yes. Uh, well, in fairness, I think Kurt Angle would have been better than the Patriot here. I think my grandmother may have been better than a Patriot here. I actually don't dislike the Patriot, Del Wilde. I think he was past his day and age and expiration date when it came to this particular version of the World Wrestling Federation, though. The Patriot is a gimmick that would have worked back in the very heavily gimmicked early 90s of the WWF, 93, 94, 95. Not necessarily as we're getting closer and closer to the dawn of the Attitude Era. And if you ask some people, we're already in it. I mean, it depends on who you ask. Some people say that the dawn of the Attitude Era is Austin winning the title at, uh, at 14. Some people say the dawn of the Attitude is Austin and Brett at 13. It depends on who you ask. Yeah, so. Um, I mean, the match itself was not bad. Once again, kind of clunky at times. Um, there's just, to me, it's not the fact that it's a bad match. It's just, to me, it feels like once the match begins, once the bell rings it feels like there's not that much really to talk about. You know, it felt like they kind of coasted for over 20 minutes. Oh, no, there's a couple of things worth talking about. That Vader moonsault, though. (laughs) That is true. Vader goes up to the top rope to attempt a moonsault. Davy Boy Smith, I believe, rolls out of the way. Well, they say he rolled out of the way. In actuality, Vader put him too close to the turnbuckle to begin with, but... Yeah. But Vader landed on his feet. Yes, he stumbled, but Vader landed on his feet. Huh? I said, yes, he stumbled. I I stand by my ish. Yeah. What is a 450-pound dude almost landing on his feet off a moonsault proof? Like, what... That's like how to shatter your knees 101 right there. Hey, who knows what he was taught in the Rocky Mountains? I get that it looks cool, and I appreciate it, but at the same time, I'm more concerned about his physical well-being than I am about a cool spot there. And frankly, that could have ended very, very badly. Thankfully, it didn't, but it could have. Hey, you know what? If he's able to trust himself enough to do that, more power to him, because 
he he could have simply had just done a belly flop or whatever he wanted to do. Instead, he thought, hey, you know what, I'll land on my feet. I believe he ate a clothesline immediately after, though. So, eh, all for naught. Theoretically cool, visually cool, but all for naught in the grand scheme of things. Maybe him, and, maybe him and Bigelow were having a contest to see who the most agile big man was in 1997. I mean, I guess technically you have to put the giant in that conversation as well. Seven foot two, 400 plus pounds doing missile drop kick. I believe he did a moonsault at one point too. Okay, see, now I'm going to have to look on YouTube to see if I can find the giant doing the moonsault. Um, no, your, your explanation of the match is pretty much spot on, though. It's not good, it's not bad, it's just there. I believe the phrase that has been used to describe these kind of matches before is perfectly acceptable wrestling. Or the saying that I usually give, it's not a good match, it's not a bad match, it's just a match. I'm going to hang up on you. You can finish the show yourself. Okay, because I get the main event to myself. By all means, go ahead and hang up. Calling my bluff grumble. Yeah, well, I had my bluff called yesterday, and that one ended up paying off for me, so ha. Anyway. I'm not letting you put yourself over here. Continue on with the call. Anyway. I'm waiting. Our next contest. It's match number seven on the night. Seven. Seven. Not the, not the Dustin Rhodes one. But I forgot, match it, number I forgot seven. about I forgot about the midgets. I mean minis. No, I mean midgets. What can I say? My math came up a little short. Alright, that's the second short joke you've made tonight. Boo. You look like Dilo Brown. It's not easy it was the first time. <laughs> All right. No, because the, the joke the joke stopped being funny after the sixty seventh one by Jerry Lawler. Anyway. All right, let's All right, let's get serious though, because it is now time for hell in a cell. It is indeed. So it is the first ever hell in a cell match. It is the WWF European champion Shawn Michaels. Nope, not on the line. Not, title thankfully not on the line. Whew. As evidence of John's pre match promo. <laughs> not, not like it would have mattered anyway, <laughs> In, even if it was on the line. Taking on The Undertaker. Now, before we get into the match itself, the argument comes in. Where, where, where do you think the inspiration for this match comes up? Where do I think this match comes from? I've heard a few different ideas from people in terms of where, where, where the idea comes from. If I had to venture a guess, I'd say this is the WWF's version of War Games. With the enclosed cage. I've heard people say War Games. I've heard people say the old school WCW cage, which was a cage, like a steel cage, but it encompass the ringside area. There's also people that say 
uh, then also give credit to the last battle of Atlanta. But for the WWF at least, this is a first of a, a first of its kind match. And this is the old hell of a cell. Sixteen feet high, plus the roof. Shawn Michaels is on his own. And the winner of this match becomes number one contender for the WWF championship the following month at Survivor Series. We're going to talk about that one soon. Don't worry. Maybe. We are. Anyway. It got pulled from the schedule, remember? No, it didn't. It wasn't replaced with anything. We're replacing another WWE show, so it's back on. Not that it was ever off. Anyway. Um, that's Wow. It got re- it got replaced because that's Shimmer Weekend, remember? No, that was a different one. That was the when we were going to do Rainy Savage is Shimmer Weekend. Right, we'll, we'll, we'll figure this out. We'll let everybody know the wins in the house and the what floors. Stay tuned to the Facebook page, facebook.com backslash wrestling unwrap. So, um, getting into the match itself... Wow, it's been a while since I've since I've watched this match. Um, Likewise, to me, here we are, nineteen years, three hundred and sixty-one days later, and it still holds up to me. I one hundred percent agree with that sentiment. In my opinion, it is still the second best Hell in a Cell match of all time, and for me, the best. I put it. I know what your number one is, but really, do you? Go ahead. All right. All right. I, I'm no. I'm curious. Go ahead. What do you think my number one is? I know it's not Undertaker and Mankind. No, it's not actually. If I'm not mistaken, I believe you told me Edge and Undertaker or Batista and Triple H. I believe Edge and Undertaker though. Nope. No. Mick Foley and Triple H, No Way Out 2000. Uh, right. I put take, I put Taker Mankind third, but that's because Taker Mankind's more of a spectacle than a match. Yeah, that's one that you don't remember the match. You remember points of the match, which actually ends up being about half the match anyway. But, um. They just go at it for almost a half an hour. There's, there's, I have a few griping points with the match. The entire night, they had hyped up one way in, one way out. Once you're locked in, you're not getting out. And that lasted for about 15 minutes. Because the one thing that was coming, one issue that kept coming up during the match is Shawn Michaels kept kicking at the referee, including, if you watch on the network, he swears at them a few times, which live you would have heard uncut. However, it is censored out on the network. Um, not the referee. Did I say referee? I meant cameraman. Yeah. It, he, 
he gets into a very substantial beef with the various cameramen around ringside. Yeah. Um, I, I, I actually did beat cameraman. Um, Go ahead, continue. And it gets to the point that at one mark in the match, Undertaker backdrops Shawn Michaels over the top rope to the floor, and Shawn absolutely crushes one of the <clears throat> camera guys. Yes, I was waiting for the <clears throat> there because that guy was clearly a plant. Well, obviously. Never found out the name, though, because I'm guessing indie wrestler of some sort. Why? Because that's what they do. Um, it's, not, it's not necessarily an indie wrestler. Maybe somebody in developmental, wherever developmental was at the time. I think it was still Deep South at this point. Uh, well, it wasn't Ohio Valley, so you might be right. I would say either Deep South or USWA. Yeah, maybe Memphis. That's what I would think, USWA. So, um, so the actual WWF photographer ends up being the one saying they need help to try and get the camera guy out of there. And wouldn't you know it, there's only one way in and one way out, meaning they have to open the door. And Shawn Michaels, having had enough of The Undertaker's basically a beatdown and seeing The Undertaker completely sit up from a direct, clean hit, switching music, Michaels books it. And they end up both on the outside. Yeah, yeah Michaels more or less says deuces. And Taker's like, uh, no. And then that leads into... That leads into the catapult. And then the lawn dart. Yeah. And the crimson mask that follows. Yeah. They brawl a little on the outside of the cell until until HBK is, as Harry mentioned, slingshotted into the cage, which busts him, which actually was the one that busted him open. However, Undertaker, not being happy with what he's already done, absolutely lawn darts Shawn Michaels into the side of the cell. And by this point now, Shawn Michaels is an absolute bloody mess. He gets a couple kicks on The Undertaker and decides to say deuces a second time. Except not to backstage, Shawn Michaels starts to climb the hell in the cell. The then 16-foot tall, I think, Hell in a cell. And they both end up... It's either 15, 16, I've heard as high... Or no, I think the current one's um, 20-ish. And they end up fighting on the top, and... First, Sean gets backdropped onto the top of the cell, which I found kind of odd. He's backdropped onto the cell, and it doesn't break. Well, it was more supported back then, I think. That, or you got to consider the near 50-pound weight difference between Shawn Michaels and Mick Foley as well as to why the cell gave when Foley got backdropped on it. Fair enough. And in the scene, well, no, wasn't really reminiscent of what would happen less than a year later. Um, Shawn Michaels ends up getting dumped 
and starts climbing down the cell until the Undertaker steps on his hands and Shawn Michaels goes about halfway down through the... Anyone want to take a guess? You have one of three options, A, B, or C. The answer is uh, C, the Spanish announce table. Yeah, my guess is the Spanish announce table because those poor bastards can't catch a break. <laughs> Except for their table. Their table always catches the break. I did find it a little odd that the English announce team wasn't in the middle like they usually are. Surprise, surprise. But Shawn Michaels goes through off the top, of, well, goes off the side of the cell through a table, and oi, and we're still not done. Remember, this was almost a half hour. It's long. Undertaker ends up dragging. Shawn Michaels back into the cell, mercifully. And from the looks of it, he's ready to finish things as they, I believe, relock the cell. And he signals for the tombstone. However, when he does that, the lights go out. And despite his pyro being late, very late, out walks Kane. No, got to do it correctly. That's got to be Kane! Walks out with Paul Bearer. Boy, did I see you get an upgrade. So did Diesel. You're welcome. Oh, okay, so here's my thought. Okay. And here's my thought, and you can call my bluff if you think I'm wrong here, because I actually think this might be why they did that with the whole brawl around ringside and Shawn Michaels going to the table. Is it possible that they switched the door so that Kane could rip it off the hinges while they were brawling around ringside? Or if not, you know, necessarily, was, if not necessarily switching the door, maybe you're removing one of the screws or something so that Kane could rip the door off as it's hinges. That is I know true, because he doesn't break the chain. Because the door was chained shut. He doesn't break that. Right. So the, the, the door just kind of hangs there because it doesn't actually get fully disconnected. So that's what I'm saying. Do you think they maybe, maybe did something in regards to possibly taking the... Uh, into possibly taking, like, a couple of the pins out so that way they would be able to rip the door off the hinges. That's the first thing I noticed when I saw Kane do this some 20 years later. Yeah, I can totally understand where that would be. And, I mean, outside of killing the magic a little bit, to me, you know, just doing that was an absolute badass thing to do. So he looks great. He looks like a monster. Absolutely agree with that. I. This is something that, this is something that 12-year-old Harry wouldn't have cared to notice, but it's something that going back and rewatching as adult Harry, kind of knowing the ins and outs of the business to an extent there, that's something that I would think about more so as to rather or not that would have been something that they would have done in order to make it, if not necessarily, maybe if not necessarily more, more likely to happen, a guarantee to happen that he would be able to rip it off. It's obviously that he had to be directly involved in the finish. Yes. And... He doesn't look like Mark Henry did when trying to break into the steel cage. Yes, absolutely. Except in that case, Mark Henry actually tried to break the chain, I believe. Anyway, Kane ends up hitting a jumping tombstone onto The Undertaker, and Shawn Michaels literally crawls over, and Earl Hebner delivers what may have been the slowest three-count he'll ever deliver, having been taken out. And Shawn Michaels picks up the victory in the first ever Hell in a Cell match. Which would, and, 
which would lead us to Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels at the Survivor Series. Not that anything of note happened, but you can skip that. It's not, it's not like the city that the match was in is named or anything. That'd be silly. I, I, I'm pretty sure that it was in Saskatchewan, I, I believe, was where Survivor Series was. See, that's weird. I thought it was in Vancouver. Eh, we'll find out eventually. But yeah, so Shawn Michaels ends up picking up the victory and is literally carried out by Triple H in China and Rick Rude, who is still there as the insurance policy, I believe... So, uh, November. Okay, end well, of, yeah. Week. End of November, if I'm not mistaken, would be the, the week that he would show up on Raw and Nitro on the same night at the same time. Yeah. With Beard and Sans Beard. Yes. Um, so, bears mentioning, real quick, this would be the second of 1997, uh, the second match of 1997, that would earn a five-star rating from Big Daddy Dave Meltzer, because, you know, his opinion is gold, and would be the last one until Punk Cena in Chicago uh, 15 years later, 14 years later. Allow me here. Hashtag FDM. Anyway. Um, <laughs> this, is, this is a brutal match, especially for Shawn Michaels. It's weird oh. how he takes an almost innocent-looking bump, and it ends up completely destroying his back two months later, but here he gets absolutely taken through the woodshed, and he comes out relatively unscathed outside of the fact that he has an almost literal crimson mask. Oh, no, there was but nothing he, almost about it. That was a full-on crimson mask that Sean was rocking. That was a, that, that, it was a crimson mask that would make Rick Flair proud. We'll put it that way. Mm, that's impressive. Maybe not mm, worth a to to paraphrase one of our favorite cartoon characters, mm, Crimson. Anyway, <laughs> um, so that ends the first ever Hell in a Cell and ends Bad Blood. And this card just this was a literal one match card to me. The, there's no, a second match that almost makes no. Don't okay. give away your big finish. Stop right there. Oh, for Christ's sake. <laughs> like, it's no, that, like it's not that damn obvious. <laughs> well, then we might as well just head right into it. Hey, Pat, it's time for your big finish, the best and the worst match on the evening, as well as our cash and our try for the evening. And then once we're done with all that stuff, we'll give this thing a nice little number to go home on. Hey, Patrick, what's your best match of the night? Obviously, the tag team flag match, without a shadow of a doubt. Why the hell are you even asking that? I, I, anyone who doesn't say hell in a cell for this show is lying to themselves and lying to you and lying to me and lying to everybody. It is the only memorable, memorable match of this show, and it is a hell of a match. It is a go-out-of-your-way-to-watch by the way, it's must, it's must view for wrestling fans, in my opinion. Yes, 
By the way, for me, I still hold to this day the greatest Hell in a Cell match, and the reason that I don't put Cactus Jack and Triple H as good and as great as it is as my top match, effectively it's number two for me. Uh, I, number three would most likely be Undertaker Mankind. But the reason it isn't is because... To me, Triple H and Cactus Jack was overshadowed by their street fight one month prior. See, to me, third would be a dogfight between Taker Mankind and Batista Triple H, because the Batista Triple H match is actually really good. But, um, Are there any... No, no, but in all sincerity, this is, in my opinion, the second best Hell in a Cell match ever, and more importantly, it is the first Hell in a Cell match ever which, in my opinion, makes it must-see viewing for wrestling fans. So, yeah, obviously, I'm going to go with the... Uh, I'm going to go with the, the Hell in a Cell as my best match on the night. You know, obviously, 20 years on, and this being our last show before the Hell in a Cell pay-per-view, you know, it's oversaturated now in the fact that you literally get at least two, if not three, every year and it kind of oversaturates it a little bit and makes the quote-unquote special ones maybe a little less special, like the WrestleMania 32 one with uh, uh, Undertaker and Shane McMahon, you know, and things like that. It makes it feel a little less special. But back in 1997, this was something special. This was something you had never seen before. Now, the next two Hell of a Cell matches were effectively throwaways on Raw, and then... The fourth one being probably the most famous one of all in Undertaker and Mankind, and that completely insane match. Um, but yeah, this is one that you go out of your way to watch. I can totally understand why this gets five stars. Go out of your way to watch this one. Just mind the camera work. Alrighty. What's your worst match of this show? Uh, we talked about this earlier as well. We <laughs> I know, but I have to ask. I have yeah, to ask I for know. formality's sake. Yes, for, for the sake of formality and keeping up with the uh, keeping up with the Joneses, as it were. Yeah, it's the eight-man tag match. Like I said, I think Crush is told to world backbreaker to win the match. It's like the only actual wrestling move outside of close. And there may have been a sidewalk slam in there somewhere, possibly. I mean, it is a Harris Brother match. So. Um, for me, I'm actually not going with the eight-man tag. I'm going with another larger-sized tag match, though, in the three-on-two handicap match. You know what? I actually thought the handicap match was better than it had any right to be, but go ahead. I'll let you explain why. For me, it was half of one tag team and one-third of the other tag team just were not good at all. You know, yes, Rock, or, you know, Rocky Maivia and The Rock shines and being able to pick up the win, but to me, it looked like Hawk was in no shape to perform and should not have been in that match. Um, at least all eight of the guys in the eight-man tag at least they didn't look that bad. 
I mean, like, in an actual sense. Not, oh, they didn't look that bad in the match, but no, they just didn't look that bad. To me, Hawk, to, at times, looked like he should not have been in there, and Animal had to pretty much do almost all the work, and eventually he gets tired, too. And it just, the whole thing was clunky, and I just, I really did not like that. It, it left a sour taste at the beginning of the show to me. No, I mean, you're entitled to your opinion. I disagree because I actually think that D'Lo and the Rock, the Rocky tried their best to make this something serviceable. And I think this match would have been better had Shamrock been involved, in my opinion. But I don't, oh, think, this reaches, I don't think this reaches the level of substitute that that eight-man tag did. Um, Alrighty, so what is your trash for this? The treatment of the Intercontinental title. Safe Stone Cold. Specifically being the fact that the match for the title was basically an afterthought to the shenanigans of Steve Austin. And do you also include, yeah, you you include the fact that Austin chucked it. (laughs) Like, literally just chucked it all the way across the ring. Um, their their treatment of the of the situation with Brian Pillman. Yeah, it wouldn't get any better the, the next time. Oh God, no! The announcement at the beginning, fine. Totally fine with that because fans are going in expecting Brian Pillman's wrestle, and obviously he's not going to because he's no longer with us. That one I totally get. You don't have to have the announcement later on about what they think might have happened, or you know we'll find out when the toxicology report is released to the public a week later. You don't have to bring that up. Yeah, Just. I- That was was very carny event to mention the fact that they thought that the belief was that it was a drug overdose. That was very carny. Yeah, I was really not a fan of that one. And then, as Harry mentioned, it doesn't get any worse the next night when Vince McMahon essentially does an exploitation interview with Brian's now-widow Melanie Pillman. And wouldn't you know it, I kind of think she kind of got bitter from that. I am curious as to whether or not that interview is on the network version of Raw. Because if it is, I'm curious to go back and watch it because I've never actually seen it before. And I want to see just how bad the exploitation is, but I've heard it's pretty awful. Yeah, that's one of the very few things that I have never seen it. I have no interest to see it. I do not want to see it at all. Not even morbid curiosity. I just don't want to see it because I've heard that it's one of the worst interviews Vince McMahon ever did. Well, and apparently a lot of people can trace this particular Vince, too, to the beginning of the Mr. McMahon character as well. The fact that he acted kind of like a dick here with Melanie Tolman in order to protect the best interest of his company, much the same way he would do in a business sense with Bret Hart a couple of weeks later in Montreal. Except at least in the Bret Hart case, someone isn't actually dead. All right, moving on to to 
lighter feelings. What is your cash for this? Uh, that's actually really difficult to give an answer to. Um, Do you want me to give mine? Yeah, because I'm, I'm not finding anything off the top of my head. WWE, to me, actually did something right and gave an incredible first impression of a match or an incredible first in impression of something. Because there are times where, you know, the, <laughs> why do you think the championship scramble match has only ever happened on one night when they did three of them? Because the whole thing was goofy, and you got interim WWE champion v. Brian Kendrick. Um, you're incorrect again, but I'll explain that once you're done. What? About what? Oh, there was an, about it. There was an ECW championship scramble at a following pay-per-view. Lovely. Once again, don't care. But this was one of the cases. So it's like, here, the chamber, and really there's not very many others where they give such an incredible first impression of something of this caliber. There's a reason we still see it here 20 years later. And there's a reason we still see the chamber 20 years later. They didn't even give a good first impression to the first Royal Rumble in 1998. It just happened to be that they finally came to their senses of, hey, let's treat this with some actual dignity instead of being a relative throwaway match. And now it's, you know, it's fighting SummerSlam for the second most popular pay-per-view of the year because everyone wants to watch the Royal Rumble. Well, in this case, the Hell in a Cell, thanks to incredible first impression, is now must-watch TV. Undertaker and Mankind would end, up tuning, would end up taking that and turning it up even further a mere eight months later with one of the most dangerous matches. And it's something that you still see here and now today. And the reason why we have the Hell in a Cell pay-per-view. I know people aren't fans of gimmick matches, or rather gimmick pay-per-views, but if there was one that deserved a gimmick pay-per-view, it's this. I'm going to disagree that Hell in a Cell deserves a gimmick pay-per-view because I feel that the fact that you make all of the matches, all of the main matches on that show, Hell in a Cell matches, makes the Hell in a Cell seem kind of superfluous. At the same time, however, I do agree that the Hell in a Cell is one of the better stipulation matches that the WWE has come up with over the course of these last 20 years. Have you found yours? Hmm? Have you found yours? <sighs> I think if we're going to go with the high spot of this, the high point of this match, high spot, I think if we're going to have to go with the high point of the show, it has to be the Hell in a Cell match. I think this is going to be one of those rare instances where I think they make the right decision not putting the champion on last. So I'm going to go with the card placement. And the fact that they put the Hell in a Cell match on last rather than shoehorning the champion into the main event. A lot of people are of the opinion that the title always goes on last. That being said, if the title holder is in a throwaway tag match, I think it made sense to give this kind of match with this kind of special stipulation with these kind of stakes on it the overall top spot on the card. So I'm going to go with the fact that they made the Hell in a Cell match the main event. 
I have to go back through Bret Hart's version of War and Peace and see if he makes an opinion about that. Being Bret Hart and him being the cranky old man that he is now, probably, and he probably didn't like that the title didn't go last, but oh well. In, in this case, the number one contender for your title match kind of had higher stakes. So, Well, just as importantly, too, in my opinion, becomes the fact that how was, how was the flag match going to top what happened in Hell in a Cell anyway? Exactly. So, and so the they, game debut. Not just the match itself, but the game debut. Right. They, uh, they put themselves in a situation where that had to go on last because there was nothing else on that card that was even going to come close to sniffing it. Yeah. I can only see one reason why Bret Hart would be PO'd about the Hell in a Cell match going last. One reason. One legitimate reason to him. Shawn Michaels main events the show, and he doesn't. Yeah, well, in fairness, we all know how Michaels and Brett 97 worked out for Brett. Yeah, so. Just saying. Alrighty. What is your final score? You know what? Since you started to give the answer to this earlier, why don't you go ahead and go first here? I have my number in mind, but I'm curious as to what yours is because I know. But given the way that you were speaking, I'm going to be curious as to what you do for yours. So I'm going to let you go first with this one. Oh, you're going to hate me. Let me finish. Okay? Mine's pretty low, so I don't think I'm going to hate you as much as you think I'm probably going to hate you. All right. A six should be a four. If not for the Hell in a Cell match, there is (laughs) nothing else on this show that makes it a worthwhile show. The tag team flag match, not bad, but, I mean, it wouldn't have been bad as a main event either, if not for the main event, but nothing of this card really is, hey, you got to go back and watch this. Half of this is barely even watchable. So, in the entire show, previous to the main event, not that good at all. It's a four, maybe a three and a half, but the Hell in a Cell match saves this show with its violence and its newness to the crowd, because like you said, the crowd hadn't uh, hadn't really, you know, the crowd hadn't seen anything like this, plus the debut of Kane, and now we have our money main event for the following month, hindsight being 2020, we know what happens. But to the live crowd, it's we're getting Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels again. What are they going to do the second, or what, you know, what are they going to do this time around after what they did a year and a half ago? So it's a six because of the Hell in a Cell. It's a four before the Hell in a Cell. Um. <laughs> It's a four. And the Hell in a Cell saves it from probably a two. I'm shocked you're that 
This is arguably the worst undercard in WWF history, with the exception of the flag match. The handicap match is a handicap match. There's a mini's tag match that literally no one cares about, and it's just there so that Lawler can make midget joke. There is a what should have been really good Brian Tillman versus Dude Love match canceled due to unfortunate circumstances, being the death of Brian Tillman. There is an eight-man tag match, which is just complete and utter garbage in terms of wrestling. There is the tag team title match that literally, while they may have been actual tag teams, they are arguably the two worst in-ring tag teams of all time in the World Wrestling Federation. And there is an IC title match that isn't an IC title match because the vast majority of the match is spent staring at the other, at the non-participant at ringside. The Hell in a Cell is the only thing that saves this from being arguably the worst WWF pay-per-view of all time. My final rating for Bad Blood 1997 is a four. And if not for Hell in a Cell, it probably would have been a two. I don't know that I'd go worst WWF pay-per-view of all time. It's certainly up there without the Hell in a Cell. WrestleMania 4 would like to speak with you. WrestleMania 4 at least has a very strong ending as well. Yeah, you can dislike Brother Jack Dude as much as you want to, but the ending visual of Randy with the belt and Liz on his shoulders is iconic. Oh, no doubt. Much the same way the individual of this show, the bloody-faced Sean being helped to the back after winning Hell in a Cell because it came, is iconic in regards to the WWF's legacy as well, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah, this, this was... The first six matches of this show should be thanking their lucky stars for that seventh match. That is the only reason you go back to watch this pay-per-view, if you even go back to watch the whole thing. No, you don't go back and watch this pay-per-view. You know what you do? You get the Hell in a Cell DVD set. You get Undertaker's Tombstone set. You get, I want to say, I, I know it's on one of the Sean sets, but I don't know which. I would not be surprised if it's on the Kane if if it's on the Twisted and Disturbed Life of Kane, or at least the ending of it is on the Twisted and Disturbed Life of Kane. I was going to say, his debut might be. Yeah, maybe maybe they clip it from where Taker hits the tombstone and then his debut happens, but there are multiple other DVDs on which you can find this match without having to actually watch this full show, and frankly, you're better off doing yourself a favor and just watching the match rather than sitting through the malarkey that the other two hours... Because this show only runs about 2.38. They're better off just watching that match rather than sitting through the malarkey that the other two hours provides. I could have sworn this ran almost 2.50. I have 2.38. In fairness, my copy might have the minis match cut from it. so That might explain why I didn't have the minis match, because it didn't make the, uh, the VHS home release. But I, I, either way you look at it, yeah, this this was the definition of a one-match card. Thank God that match delivered. It delivered and then some. Probably helps that you have one of the greatest in-ring performers of all time in the match. 
and you have a certified legend in the match. Actually, you have two certified legends in the match, you know, who know what they're doing, and maybe they don't know what they're dealing with with the, with the cell itself, but they're able to pull that off easily. So that about wraps things up here on this edition of Wrestling Unwrapped. Happy anniversary, Hell in a Cell. Wait, what now? I said happy anniversary, Hell in a Cell. Oh, yeah. Good for it. Four days away. You know, it's almost legal drinking age now. Which is ironic because some of them are enough to drive you to drinking. Technically, the Iron Man match in the WWF would be almost, would be almost old enough. Uh, um, yeah, no, it's old enough to drink now. The Iron Man match is old enough to drink. That was 96. It would be 22. Or 21. It'd be going into 22. It'd be 21 now. It'd be 21 and three quarters, yeah. Which, by the way, in my eyes, that's one of the first impressions. That's bad. Uh, yeah, the ones that Brett and Owen were having were a lot better than the ones Brett and Sean had. And the ones Rock and Triple H had, to me, jumped on it, as did Brock and Kurt. Which is weird, hearing Brock Lesnar was in an amazing 60-minute match. Yeah, well, that was back when Brock was more than Suplex City F5 finish. Just an F5 finish. So... Yeah, that about wraps things up here. So, so thank you very much. What, what? Why don't we tell them what's coming up here on Wrestling Unwrapped? I was about to, and then you cut me off. Oh, well, that makes us even because you cut me off earlier. <laughs> yes, but I was already talking. You weren't. Anyway, thank you very much for joining us here on Wrestling Unwrapped. As Harry did mention just now, be sure to... Uh, tune in two weeks from now because next week we will be off of our normal time slot again because of a WWE pay-per-view again in this case being WWE Hell in a Cell with only two Hell in a Cell matches the Smackdown Tag Team Championship match The New Day versus The Usos and Kevin Owens versus Shane McMahon you know what they still have another week. Anything can happen. I hope it doesn't. <laughs> um, we'll see. And then two weeks from now, we will be back in our normal time spot, time spot doing Revolution Pro UK's show. It is one of his final matches before going to become the Raw GM. It is headlined by Kurt Angle versus the Technical Wizard and the first week classic competitor, Zack Sabre Jr. So that is what we have going on for the next couple of weeks. And then a pay-per-view again. Yeah, but after that next pay-per-view on the 22nd, we do get an almost one-month reprieve in order to be able to fill it in with our own stuff. Thank God November only has one pay-per-view again. Anyway. Well, we, well let's give... Let's give people a little bit of a heads up as to what to expect uh, towards the end of November. Um, Patrick and I have focused a ton on WrestleMania here on Wrestling Unwrapped, and we feel that it is unfair to its counterpart from the other side of the Mason-Dixon. Therefore, in the two weeks after the Survivor Series, 
Patrick and I have decided that we are going to cover the best of Starcade set here on Wrestling Unwrapped. It will be a two-week program where we cover discs one and two on the first episode, and then discs three and the big finish on week two of the episode. Yes, so we're going back to a two-week uh, a two-week review of an actual set, much like we did with Saturday night's main event. In this case, though, there's only 25 matches instead of 32. I think the countdown was 25. It may have only been 20. It's 25. Okay, that's what I thought. So the idea being we'll do probably... 25 to 11, this is just an idea we have to hash out, 25 to 11, week one, and then week two, we'll do 10 to 1 plus the big finish. So then it's something that would, to look forward to. That would be my assumption. We'll see if Hogan pulls a creative control card and forces everything into one night and then makes this change when number one is because of what happens. Well, let me tell you something, brother. <laughs> Hashtag FHH. Yeah. <laughs> Hashtag BJD. Yeah. So that's what you have to look forward to here in the next couple of weeks. So that about wraps things up here on W2M Net, which we are a presentation of the W2M Network. You can check out all of our previous episodes at the aforementioned W2Mnet.com, as well as 411mania.com and lastwordonprowrestling.com. In addition, if you are a football fan, you can listen to the alternative show to Football to the Max here on the W2M Network, and that would be The Kickoff, as I host along with Brandon Biscoping and Stephen Ur III as we cover a more pardon-the-interruption-style take on the week ahead and prior in the worlds of both college and the NFL. That is the kickoff here on the W2M Network. Also, this week, I will be all over the W2M Network on its television shows, as I will be filling in for Gary on Raw and NXT for this week. And in addition, I debut my new co-host on the SmackDown and 205 Live shows this Tuesday night as well. God help us. (laughs) Something like that. For our non-existent producer, Sean Garmer, I'm Harry Broadhurst. And I'm Patrick Katzo. Oh, okay, me. Thank you very much for joining us here. (laughs) Well, thank you very much for joining us here. As we look back at the 20th anniversary of the Hell in a Stub match itself with bad blood in your house here on the W2M Network. We'll see you in two weeks, guys. Night, everyone. The following podcast is a W2M Network original production. Visit W2Mnet.com for all of our other great podcasts, plus news, reviews, articles, and opinions from the worlds of wrestling, video games, football, and entertainment.